morning, church. Thank you, Mark, and worship team for that this morning. Well, I wanted to start with just a few comments about the leadership letter that went out this week. Hopefully all of you received that letter um, encouraging you to seek out community and fellowship through small groups as our church grows and as we add um, new people to our body. It's important that we not lose sight of the fact that this is a body. This is meant to be a group of believers walking together through this life, serving one another, encouraging one another, and finding fellowship in that way. So um, we would like to encourage you, without making it some sort of formal program, we would like to strongly encourage you to seek out that community and that fellowship with one another and to use that as a means to, to grow in your walk with the Lord um, to serve one another and to exercise the one another's of scripture together. So as you, as you seek to do that, we do want to provide resources for you. And so Alex Stewart is your contact person for that. He can help you get those groups set up, provide uh, teaching materials if you need it. Um, and so we all just look forward to how the Lord's going to use that in, uh, in our body. So with that, let's pray as we begin our time in the word together. Father, we do thank you for the cross, and we do recognize that there is no reason by which you should redeem us. There is nothing good in any one of us. It is only your grace that allows us to stand before you, and the cross is a wonderful reminder of that. And so would that be uh, foremost on our hearts and our minds today as we approach your word? Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have not left us alone and without a set of absolutes by which to govern our beliefs and our behavior in this world. And so as we examine it today, would we behold anew your wonder and your power? Would we be um, captivated by the redemption that you have accomplished on our behalf? And Father, would you help us as we look at this passage to see how it applies to our lives, how we can walk more faithfully with you, um, and what this looks like in our everyday interactions. And so we pray just for your blessing on all of that today, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're also not in the habit of recognizing people when they come back to church, but there is someone here today who deserves special mention. John Dietrich is back with us this morning. So... We want to we praise the Lord for the healing that's happened there and for bringing him back, and we're just grateful that he's here. John, we've missed you. Well, um, Ulysses S. Grant was the commander-in-chief of all the Union forces during the American Civil War, but his given name was not Ulysses S. Grant. His given name at birth was Hiram Ulysses Grant. And so when he joined West Point, he changed his name at that uh, record to Ulysses Hiram Grant. And so you can decide which sounds more awkward, Ulysses or Hiram. I'm not really sure. He, he didn't really have many good options there for him. But he changed his name to Ulysses Hiram Grant. And then at some point during his time at, at West Point, his middle name got completely dropped and replaced with his mother's maiden name. Nobody knows why that just happened. And so we end up with a general and a president named Ulysses Simpson Grant, who was not named that at all um, at birth. But as you can imagine, the name U.S. Grant provided a lot of nicknames, especially for someone who was in the military or who was a president. Um, his, his favorite or the most longstanding was Uncle Sam Grant. And so as a result, all of his friends just called him Sam Grant. 
And so when you look at Ulysses and then Sam, you don't really see the connection there, but that's how he came with the name Sam Grant. But another nickname that he received that some of you may be familiar with is Unconditional Surrender Grant. He was given that nickname because of his behavior during the Civil War and specifically his first major encounter with the enemy that happened in February of 1862. Now, the war began in April of 1861 with the shots that were fired on Fort Sumner. And in 1862, things were looking very bleak for the North. Um, up to this point, despite the fact that they were a far superior army in terms of numbers and technological advancements, they delivered a series of very embarrassing defeats by the underdog Confederate Army, to the point that Washington, D.C. itself was threatened by the armies of the South. So in the Eastern Theater, things were looking really bad, but there was some hope coming out of the Western Theater, and that's where then Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant was serving. And so he was headed down the, the Cumber Cumberland and Tennessee rivers, um, threatening the, the whole network of Tennessee. And Tennessee was of unique importance to the Union cause because that was the transportation hub for the Southern Army. There were lots of uh, railroads that ran all through Tennessee. And so if we could disrupt that section of Tennessee, we could disrupt the distribution of those supplies. And so that was his target, to come down and to capture Tennessee. But standing in his way were two forts along the river, Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. And Fort Henry fell rather easily, but Fort Donelson proved to be the much more difficult fort to capture and to attack. And through, through a series of, of strategic moves, in fact, Grant was almost defeated at that battle. The, the forces from the fort counterattacked and almost threw his army back into the river. But as was his uh, greatest accomplishment as a general, he would take those moments of apparent defeat and turn it into absolute victory. And so because the Confederates had forced all of their forces on this side of his army, he then counterattacked on the opposite side and captured the fort. So that night after the battle, the Confederate officers were, were determining what to do and they decided to surrender. Even though there were 13,000 Confederate troops still in that fort, they determined their only option was to surrender. And so in an act of supreme cowardice, the two Confederate generals who commanded that fort fled. They ran, ran away and left their second-in-command in charge, General Simone Bolivar Buckner. And so in the morning, he sent his, his note to Grant and asked for his terms of surrender. And the famously taciturn Grant came back with these words, No terms except unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. And so the Confederates had to surrender all of their forces, 100% of their men were casualties that day as they were captured and imprisoned. Well, the news of this victory electrified the North um, and Grant became an instant hero overnight and he was given the nickname Unconditional Surrender Grant because of his, because of his behavior in that battle. Well, as we think about Unconditional Surrender and the way that uh, took place in Grant's campaign, in a sense, we have terms of surrender being offered and elicited in our passage this morning. For the first time, as Pharaoh has engaged with the nation of Israel and has engaged with the ten plagues, for the first time, he is willing to negotiate in this passage. He is willing to come to the Lord and ask for some sort of resolution to the, the suffering that he is under. But the resounding answer that comes back from Moses and from Yahweh is the terms of, of surrender that Yahweh gives to Pharaoh, Pharaoh are unconditional surrender. There will be no negotiation. 
you will surrender completely to what Yahweh has in mind. And so another way to look at that is Moses does not compromise. Moses doesn't compromise the standards that God has given him. He doesn't move an inch on what God has asked him to do. He stays faithful and obedient to the task that God has called him to. And so as we think about that as our theme for this morning, what does it look like for us as believers to walk as people without compromise? I think it's a very timely and important topic for us, isn't it? Everywhere we turn as believers, as, as a church, as Christians in this world, we are asked to compromise. We are pushed, there is pressure on every side for us to compromise the standards which we hold to, confess, and believe. That's in terms of matters of doctrine, whether it be what we confess about salvation, the gospel, and sin, and we are asked to move from an orthodox standard of that, or in terms of church life and, and practice, the way we live morally in terms of sexuality and in terms of even the right order of relationships within a home and a marriage. In all of those areas, the church and Christians are asked to compromise on what the clear, clear truth of what scripture says. Now, the reason that we don't compromise, the reason that we don't budge an inch is not because we're stubborn, obstinate, prideful people. The reason that we don't budge and the reason that we hold firmly to the truth that God has given us is because we believe that this is the truth and the absolutes by which we are called to live by. And there is that theme as well running through our passage this morning. So while we examine this issue of compromise and not compromising what we believe to be true as Christians, Moses also gives us the reasons that we don't compromise. And he does that by setting up a comparison. He invites us to compare Pharaoh with the Israelites. And Pharaoh with the prideful exaltation of himself and Israel with their humble servitude to God. And we see that the pride of man brings about starvation, suffering, and death for his people. But service to God brings about provision and familial community. And so the reason we don't compromise is because we have confidence to know that we have better answers and we have a better truth than anyone else in this world. And if we compromise even an inch on what scripture says, we abandon the truth and the hope that God has given us here. So that's where we're headed this morning as we pick up this, this account of the plague. So we're in Exodus chapter 10, and we'll begin by reading verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the presence of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, so that you know, may know that I am the Lord. So this again is a great summary of why Exodus is such an important book to, to read and to study. Within Exodus, we have all of the key thoughts and doctrines about who our God is. Exodus, now, now we need the rest of Scripture to help us interpret Exodus. But encapsulated within Exodus, in the work that God does in Exodus, we see every aspect of his character and nature on display for all to see. We see his power and his holiness. We see his wrath and his judgment. But we also see his grace and his mercy. We see election, predestination, God's choice of nations for salvation. We see his wisdom, the way he guides a people. And we see, above all, 
his sovereignty over all things. All of that is encapsulated within Exodus. And so it's an incredibly important book for us to know and to teach. But notice who we teach this to, to your sons and your grandsons. Now, this is the first time that this kind of language has been used in Scripture, that you are to pass these things on to the next generation, that you are to take these truths, these things that you have learned about God in Exodus, and you are to pass them on to your children and to your grandchildren. They should know who God is because of the testimony that you give to them. You are an eyewitness of this event. You saw the incredible power of God on display. And now it is your job to make sure the next generation know these truths about our God and who he is. Now, that's not a command that's unique to the Hebrews. That's a command that is true for us today as well. You know, the wonderful thing about children is they are always learning. You don't have to actively teach them. They are always watching you and always learning from your example. They're learning what sports teams to root for and who to cheer for in the certain games. They learn how to invest money or what to think about possessions and what really matters in life. From watching you, they learn how to treat other people. They learn how to treat a wife or a husband. Children are always learning, and we, as their parents, are always teaching. And so it takes, it bears a moment for us to pause and to ask if we are being as intentional in teaching our children the wonder and the majesty of our God as we are those other aspects of life. Are we showing them a God who is awesome, who is loving, who is gracious and kind? Or when they see us, do they just see someone who cares about the sports for the weekend or the money that they have in the bank or the cars that they drive? It's worth examining our lives and, and checking that out. This isn't applicable, though, just to, to those of us who are parents. If you're a single man or woman, if you're a newly married cuppy, couple who don't have children, people are still watching your life. And what are you communicating to them through the priorities that you have, through the choices that you make, and the way that you spend your time? Do our lives put on display the wonderful, powerful God that we have seen revealed in the passages of Scripture? Or when people look at our lives, do they see just another person walking through life without a care in the world? I hope that all of us are, are gripped by the wonder of God that we see in this passage and that, that translates into how we live our lives in our everyday decisions. So then Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh another time. So we pick up in verse 3. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land, and they will also eat the rest of what has survived, what is left to you from the hail, and they will eat every tree of yours which grows in the field, and then your houses will be filled with them, together with the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And then he turned and left Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the people go, so that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is destroyed? 
And so Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh another time, and there's another unique phrase that's used in verse 3. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, How long will you refuse to humble yourself? How long will you refuse to humble yourself? If you remember last week, um, the, the way that was worded was Moses said, You continue to exalt yourself in front of this omnipotent God. And so it's the same idea, just phrased a different way. In, in one, you exalt yourself in front of a God who has demonstrated that he has all power and authority, and here you're refusing to humble yourself. Now, this is the first time in Scripture that the word humility is used. And as you know, Hebrew is a very pictorial language. And the word that's used here for Hebrew means to bow, or for humble, means to bow in the dust, to be brought low by affliction. And that's an incredible picture based on what Pharaoh has been going through. God has been afflicting him, and yet he refuses to bow and to acknowledge his God, to acknowledge who God is and the power that he exists. And so this becomes the central point of the passage. Pharaoh's continuing living in in pride and refusing to become humble, and we see the results of that. And we are called in this passage to examine the results of someone who follows after his own pride and exalts himself against those who are willing to bow and to serve the Lord. So that's what we see in the nation of Israel next. Look at this phrase, let my people go that they may serve me. Now, the the other wonderful thing about Exodus is I never get to talk about everything in every passage. You may think that I do, but I really don't. There's more. I could stay here much longer than I do. See how that's like reverse psychology? Now you're like, oh, he got done so early. Great, only 45 minutes. (laughs) And so we've heard this phrase all throughout these these plague narratives where Moses' request is let my people go that they may serve me. And, And it sounds so familiar and we hear it all the time. And yet think about what that phrase says. Listen to the order with which that phrase communicates. What is first? Let my people go so that they may serve me. Now, I know you're saying, well, yes, obviously, what's so important about that? Well, it's not the reverse, right? It's not, you served me, so now I'm going to let you go. You were a good people, you were righteous, and now I'm letting you go. No, within this phrase is a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of his election. He is choosing you to redemption regardless of whether you serve him, regardless of whether you have lived righteously. But once you are saved and redeemed, then you are called to serve me. I am redeeming you so that you may serve me. Now, as we think about this idea of pride and humility, this word for service is a very menial term. It's the service that a slave would offer to a master. That is what God is calling us to. He is saving us so that we can be in bondage to him, so that we can be his slaves and serve him. This word for service is the same words that's used for worship throughout the Old Testament. As you come into the temple, you come to serve the Lord, to worship him with this menial service to his name. And yet we are called to compare the results of these two things. Like I said, we have Pharaoh's pride on the one hand, and we're called to examine the results of that pride. How does it end for a man who rebels against the sovereign Lord? And then we have the results of the Hebrews, who choose to humbly 
menially serve their Lord, to be in bondage and service to him. And what is the result for them? Well, we start to see that played out in the next couple of verses, which we already read, so I don't need to read them again. Sorry. Um, But it's played out in the plague of the locusts. So now remember, the plagues increase in intensity as we go through. And so the locusts show an increased intensity in the plagues that we have experienced. But you might be asking, how are locusts more of a plague than gnats or flies or frogs? What is it specifically about locusts that makes it more intense and more difficult than some of the other plagues that have come along? Well, I'm glad you asked. The reason for that is because the locusts would have wiped out all of the crops and the food that was left in the nation of Egypt. And so when we read locusts, we're not reading bugs. What you should be reading is famine. The locusts represent famine. When the locusts come, there is famine and starvation that comes after them. Now, locusts are grasshopper-like creatures that grow in the desert. And so if there's a particularly wet year, more locusts survive, creating these swarms of of locusts. And so um, the normal survival rate for a locust is one out of every 16 survives. But if you have really good growing conditions for locusts, more of them survive, creating these hordes and these masses that then can converge on countrysides and wipe out their, their crop-producing ability. The other thing that's interesting about locusts is they aren't able to fly themselves, or certainly not the distance that they are carried. They are dependent upon wind to carry these swarms of locusts and to direct them. And so they have wings that they can get in the air, but then they are dependent upon the wind to move them. And so the movement of locusts is very capricious. There's no way to predict where they're going to go, but you should know by now that God is the one who directs where the locusts go. He's the one who directs where the flies go and where the frogs go and where the locusts will land, and he does the same here. He directs this horde of locusts right into the Nile River Valley and destroys the crops that are in Egypt. It's repeated a couple of times throughout the passage, and I'm not sure we're going to read all of them, but it says that they will eat the rest of what has survived, and then it's, it's drawn aside to provide emphasis. What is left to you from the hail? And they will eat every tree of yours which grows in the field. This is significant because as we talked about on Wednesday night, Pharaoh's decision to continue his rebellion was based upon the fact that the wheat and the rye were not destroyed. The hail did not destroy those crops. And so he had those in his back pocket of knowing that at least the wheat and the rye harvest to help my nation get through this time. And obviously, Pharaoh's plans are shown to be so futile because God had a plan to destroy even the wheat and the rye and to bring famine upon the nation of Egypt. It's also ironic because earlier in Genesis, who saved Egypt from famine? It was Joseph. God's instrument, the precursor of Christ, saved Egypt from famine. And now God is bringing famine on the nation as a part of his judgment upon them for their rebellion against him. So, in, in line with what we're talking about this morning, the prideful choice of man, his rebellion against God, the choice to walk in sin, results in what? Results in famine. It results in starvation, death, and suffering for an entire nation. Now, 
Let's examine what happens to the nation of Israel and the result of their choice to serve the Lord and to be in submission to him. So, uh, so Pharaoh, Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is destroyed? And so here, the magicians are finally recognizing the truth of what has happened, that their nation has been destroyed. And so they plead with Pharaoh to have some sense of reason. And so, so, Pharaoh, so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go and serve the Lord your God. Now, who specifically are the ones who are going? And Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. And then he said to them, So may the Lord be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Watch out, for evil is on your mind. Not so. Go now, but only the men among you, and serve the Lord, since that is what you desire. And so they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh is appealed upon by his magicians to bring Moses and Aaron back into his presence, and so he does so. He meets with them another time, and this is where he begins his negotiation. Well, how much do I have to listen to your request? How much do I need to release you in order to get uh, God to stop punishing me? Is there a middle ground where we can meet? Or do I have to release everyone? And I don't think there are any more beautiful words in scripture than what Moses comes back with. They are gentle and they are calm. They are reserved, but they are as hard as iron. And Moses does not budge on, on the request and the obedience that he knows he is called to do. We shall go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds, and we shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. These are mirisms, and so the point is not that only the young and the old go, but the young, the old, and everyone in between, everyone is going, your sons and your daughters and all of the offspring of Israel, your flocks and your herds and all of the livestock, everyone is going on this exodus. And so Moses doesn't compromise an inch on this conversation with Pharaoh. And you have to realize how tempting that would have been. Pharaoh hasn't budged. He has been hard the entire time. And now he shows an inkling of softening. And don't you know that Moses was tempted to respond to that and to say, sure, we'll take whatever you give us. And we'll go with just our men and we'll leave our women and children, hoping to capitalize on that and to build. But that's not the way this ever works, is it? The only thing that we can do is obey 100% of what God has called us to without compromise. And so when we have that opportunity to compromise, we must hold firmly and graciously to the truth that God has called us to. We cannot budge an inch. We can be as gracious as Moses, but as hard as Moses, as Moses in this conversation. Now, it's also interesting that Pharaoh wants to free just the men, but to leave the young children and the women. And the reason for that is because in Egyptian cultic practice, only the men participated in worship. And so this is a fascinating point where Moses recognizes that while men will have leadership in the cultic worship that Yahweh is instituting, there is an important place for women and children in the family life of Israel. So that's in contrast to what Egypt had expected. 
God has a plan to include the women and the children in what he is doing with the nation of Israel. And notice what he is calling them out into the wilderness for. He is calling them out into the wilderness to celebrate a feast. Now, you don't have to know much about a feast to know that if you're going to have a feast, you have to have what? Food. You have to have lots of food. And, and feasts are a religious celebration for the nation, and so there's religious significance to it. But don't miss the fact that there's food. As God is inflicting a famine upon Egypt, he is providing abundantly for his people, so much so that they can have a feast. And so, as we're comparing these two things, the pride of man bringing about starvation, suffering, and death, service to God, menial service to God, enslaving yourself to God, brings about abundant provision. Isn't that amazing? What a beautiful comparison and picture of the results of those two beliefs and where they end up. The last thing I want to point out in this section is the important role that children play throughout this passage. We've already talked about the fact that in the beginning, we have a call to pass on these truths to the next generation. And yet here, we also see that the children are included in the worship of Israel. They're included in the Exodus. They are an integral part of what happens to the nation. Now, I want you to just think about that with where we're going for the nation of Egypt, because what happens in the next several chapters in Exodus? Whose children are killed? It is the children of the Egyptians. Pharaoh's pride brings about suffering and death, not just for himself, but for the women and the children of his nation. Whereas God's people brings about the inclusion of women and children, the protection and care for them, all within this covenant that God is building with his people. Are you seeing the beautiful picture that's being painted here? I think it's a wonderful picture of what life in the covenant with God looks like. So, um, verses 12 through 20 are just a description of what happens with the locusts. And so they do come, they inflict Egypt with famine, and, and all of that happens just as Moses said. It's even down to the details that an east wind blows them into Egypt, just like we talked about, and a west wind blows them out and into the, the Red Sea. And so God brings that judgment upon the nation because of Pharaoh's rebellion. And so now we pick up with the ninth plague, the penultimate plague, the second to last. So then the Lord said to Moses, this is verse 21, Reach out with your hand toward the sky so that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. And so Moses reached out with his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. And they did, not, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all of the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. And then Pharaoh called for Moses and said, Go and serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be left behind. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, so that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. But we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me and be careful. Do not see my face again, for on the day that you see my face, you will die. And Moses said, You have spoken correctly. I will never see your face 
again. What a dramatic conclusion to that interlude. But the plagues build with intensity, right? So really, darkness, darkness being on the land, is the second greatest plague. That's really the, the worst one other than killing the children of Israel. How is the plague of darkness really that extreme? Well, I think Moses draws our attention to the reason this is so difficult. Look at verse 23. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. So what does that sound like? That is total isolation. You are completely alone and cut off from all relationships. There is no community that you have. You are sitting alone without any interaction with other people. So remember the picture that was painted of Israel. Israel is being called out of this place to go as a family, as a community in covenant fellowship to worship God. And meanwhile, what's happening to Egypt? They are cut off and left in utter isolation. And once again, we're called to evaluate which one, which one is better. Utter isolation and aloneness or being involved in that covenant fellowship under God. I think we know exactly which one is better. Now, we can't really comprehend a darkness like this. Light pollution is, is everywhere, even a little bit in Perry County. There's getting to be more dust of dawn lights around, and it's not as dark as it was as it used to be. And so we don't really understand what it's like for it to be completely and utterly dark. For the nation of Egypt, there was no electricity, obviously, but there even were very few, very few fuels. Boy, that's tough to say. Um, that they could burn in order to, cre to create illumination. And so when the sun went down, everything stopped and they were dark. Their, their entire economy and society functioned on daylight. And so when daylight is taken away, everything grinds to a halt. The passage that where, or the verse where it says a darkness that could be felt is, is famously difficult to interpret. And uh, there's certainly a sense in which darkness feels oppressive. And I think we've all had that, where you can feel darkness sort of weighing you in. But there's also a, a theory that says this passage means darkness which required to be felt. And so, in a sense, the only way you could move was by groping your way through the darkness because you couldn't see anything. And so it's incredibly oppressive darkness that they are under. And it's darkness that causes them to live in isolation cut off from their family, cut off from their friends, and everything else that they knew. So we come to, to our final evaluation. Based on what this passage has said, we are called to evaluate which is superior. Is it superior to embrace our pride and to rebel against Yahweh, the God of the universe? Or is it superior to place ourselves in servitude to him, to enslave ourselves in bondage to him, and to experience then the freedom that he gives us. Well, the entire testimony of scripture is in line with what this passage teaches as well. And it is that true freedom and life in the fullest is found in bondage to our Savior. If we continue in our rebellion against God, it will be much worse than the famine that the Egyptians suffered. It will be much worse than the darkness and the isolation that they suffered. Our rebellion 
uh, is rightly punished by eternal punishment in hell, where we are separated from God forever and from one another. The only solution to that is to recognize our inability to save ourselves, to recognize the need we have of a Savior to come from outside and to redeem us. And so my call to you this morning, especially as we prepare to go before the table, is to evaluate your relationship with Christ today. Are you right with the Lord? Have you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins and him alone? Or are you somehow depending on your own righteousness to save you? For those of you who have trusted in Christ for your salvation and are a part of that covenant family, I hope that today is a wonderful reminder of the benefits of being in that covenant. That in that covenant of grace, we have abundant provision for our physical and our spiritual needs. We have abundant life now. We also have familial community. We are not left in isolation like those who are lost. And that is a wonderful thing to behold. And so for those of us who are saved, these truths become a great encouragement and a hope this morning. And so let's, uh, let's pray, and then we will uh, move into our time of communion. Father, we do thank you for the truth of this passage. Thank you for the picture that it paints of, of your grace and of the vastly superior benefits of being a part of your family. Lord, that inclusion in your family, as we've said many times, is not because of our goodness, but it is only because of your character and your grace. So, Father, we rest in that this morning. And as we come to the table and as we partake of these elements, we thank you for the sacrifice that you provided. We thank you for Christ's death on the cross and for the past, present, and future implications of that, that even as we partake of these elements, we anticipate his coming again and partaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we look forward to that with hope. So we thank you for all these things and pray all of this in Jesus' name.